On today's episode of Project Pundits Unplugged, the boys discuss fine furniture. Oh wait, I was thinking Herman Munster, Herman Miller well, chair. Herman got, Munster you know, would sorry. also fit in this chair, which is why I got it. But uh, Jim plans his fire escape route. I'm stuck. Like if if I had to get up in the middle of this podcast, my these wheels are embedded through the plastic into the carpet. I can't Folks, move. If if you hear a fire alarm, could you call like, 9114 Jim cuz he's just going to burn That's in it. Place I'm going to have to flip like the desk to get out of here. And Jim and Braden do Jerry and George. Was it over the side? It was over the it's, side. It was like a fat person sitting in the middle seat bleeding over the armrest into my area. Like it's terrible. It was and, terrible. And we went on we went on this way for at least ten minutes. At which point I said, Jim, it this is George and Jerry. I'm egging you on with with sort of prodding questions to say, so he wasn't just resting against, he was over, he was over! <laughs> Boy, all right. Well, Breeding and I were just going back and forth. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Project Pundits Pod. Um, we uh, we've 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 released a couple of episodes at this point. This is this is our third one, and we went back and forth on where to go with the topics. Um, and we're certainly aware of of trying to not go down the too drive a topic path. So. When we talked about it, we settled on uh, a topic of uh, PMOs, uh, primarily because it's a topic that a lot of people deal with. There's a lot of passion around them. There's a lot of investment. There's a lot of lost investment on PMOs. PMO has become a four-letter word in a lot of organizations. Uh, A lot of organizations associate PMOs with administrative overhead, loss, slowing down of projects, things like that. But I think both Braden and I uh, see a value in them if they're done right, implemented right. Um, you in know, some cases, aren't aren't PMOs? What, don't you have a story of a PMO that was literally a four-letter word? Didn't well, they turn it into the? That's right. And F-PMO? so this gets to the the title of the show. Um, this 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 you know it it wasn't just a, a funny quip, uh, you know, or, or or something to to drive traffic. Uh, we. <laughs> You know, it, we'll get into it when we get into the different types of PMOs. But one of the organizations that I happen to work for um, started what they called a federated PMO, which you know I, I have my opinions on, but it's it's not an unreasonable approach to uh, you know how to roll out these functions, a federated model. It, and and I would say, based on my experience, it, it's common, right? Yeah. You see it in lots of organizations where they essentially don't have a central versus a centralized pro- project management office. But we'll get into that. And then, and so, you know, from, from the title standpoint, you know, the unfortunate, <laughs> and, and we're going to get into the importance of marketing, <laughs> marketing a PMO and its functions as well as being... Internally, <laughs> internal marketing, yeah. Right? And, and so, you know... For whatever reason, the folks in charge of this PMO decided to launch it at a company meeting and call it the the FPMO. And <laughs> let's just say there was already some experience within the organization with PMOs oh. and things like that. So that that quickly, I mean, 
I mean, as soon as it flashed on a screen, it became the effing PMO. And so in every <laughs> meeting, it's like, did you get that done for the effing PMO? <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, oh. Lessons, I'm, I'm not sure I needed to learn that lesson, but if you did need to learn it, that person learned it pretty quick. Um, so, uh, did they did they ever rename while you were there? Did they rename the organization in some way? Did yeah. they have to rebrand they, they, it? They, they, they renamed yeah. it and laid everybody off and got rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yep. Oh yep. boy. Um, and so yeah, we're we're going to get into the different models. What makes PMO successful? Why they fail? You know, there's there's some I think some some quick lessons learned uh, that both of us have that we want to share. Um, I think PMOs done right will help your organization drive your change initiatives and your projects forward in a predictable way. It will allow your leadership, your stakeholders, and as well as all of the folks working on the projects uh, work a little bit more harmoniously. There's transparency, and I think that that word predictability is key, right? Um, doesn't mean everything's going to go well. Doesn't mean you're going to overcome every problem, but it it allows people to interact um, with projects on a on a more real data driven basis if done right. Um, it's it's not an easy thing to do. I think structurally, conceptually, it's fairly straightforward. In practice, not so much. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think we'll we'll dive into some tips and tricks on on how to discuss the PMOs with different folks as well. So there's there's a lot here, so we'll, we'll dive right in. So what is a PMO? Uh, Project Management Office, we probably should have, you know, explained an acronym. Oh, by the way, pet peeve of mine, if you're writing presentations, even if you think everybody knows an acronym, first time you use it, please explain the acronym, and then you feel free to use the acronym. I just broke my own rule by not explaining what a PMO was. It's an acronym for Project Management Office. Yeah, that's right. You can. I'm just. I'm ashamed. Yeah, I. I am ashamed. I think. I think similar to what we talked about in in prior pods, we're going to talk about structural stuff, and and you know, Braden and I will go back and forth on this. But I mean, really, a PMO, and we'll get into the kinds of PMOs. But generally speaking, they provide uh, a structure for how project programs, projects get managed. Sometimes it goes upstream to managing portfolio, the elements of a portfolio, but project portfolio manager or PPM is usually a separate practice. Um, in some organizations, however, they, they do combine those functions. But essentially, a PMO, for the most part, is uh, has the responsibility of either facilitating or administratively overseeing a set of project work or investments that an organization makes. A PMO can be at an enterprise level. It can be within, uh, say, an IT group only. It's, it's basically a project management office to manage a set of work, which is usually multiple projects, in a consistent, repeatable way. And, you know, typically with that, you're going to get uh, the functions of, uh, you know, what what methodologies do we want to use to run these projects? How do we want to manage the finances and budget? What are our standard management processes? Change management, risk management, issue management, communications management, quality management. Usually that group is responsible for setting up those standards, setting up repeatable processes and whatnot. Um, uh, you know, building on that, they're, 
you know, as PMOs grow and mature, they also look at tools for helping to manage that. Project management tools, schedule management, collaboration tools like Microsoft Teams or or Jira or, you know, uh, Microsoft uh, ADO for agile stuff, things like that um, and whatnot. Um, and I would, I would say that the other key component with this is what types of functions fall under the PMO. Now, again, that varies by organization. So minimally, I would say project management or I say minimally program management, project management, usually the project management function, there's either a straight line or a dotted line with those resources into that organization. So there's consistency with execution. Um, but PMOs, a lot of them I deal with also fold in business analysis practices, you know, things with requirements management, process development, things like that. Um, it can include quality assurance, uh, at least from a project perspective. Uh, solution architecture sometimes goes in there, uh, especially when you're dealing with a lot of complex projects, uh, technical design pieces. So there's there's different functions depending on how the organization is structured. Any of those things I think are fine. Um, concepts are the same, right? You want to have a consistent set of processes, ideally you have some tools to back it up and whatnot. Um, but really, I think where the, the magic happens is, is how you implement those for your organization. Um, and Braden's getting into some of the, the communication elements, but communications and, and having the PMO be that hub for communications is critical. So. so so let me talk just a little bit, if I could, about um, communications. something that I'm passionate about, which communications. is communications. The PMO in the end... Should, should be able to enunciate um, status, resources, schedule, the, the typical things that you would expect within a given project, the PMO should have control and, and clear pathways for that communication. They should have standards around how that information gets communicated out. And, and the standards, again, can, can involve tools and templates and other things that Jim talked about. But in the end, and this is what's important, if those templates and tools get ignored, which often they do, um, or if they get populated in ways that are starting to become less useful. In the end, you have to go back to the principle of, am I accomplishing the goal that I have for this PMO? Do people, am I coordinating and ensuring that the delivery of this is a consistent experience? And if I'm not, then something needs to change, whether that's the way that I'm communicating, not necessarily, again, the template or the tool, which people always jump to, but is it the way that I'm populating the information? Is it the way that the information is being shared? Um, what are the cadences that I have that I'm informing stakeholders? Are those cadences effective? Are they attending? Are they listening? Are they engaged in the conversation? If not, do I need to change the way that I'm sharing that information? These are, these are questions that PMOs should frequently be asking um, and, and prodding to say, how engaged am I getting my stakeholders through the communication paths that I'm using? Jim, any, any thoughts on, on any of this as we've been going through? Yeah. I think if, Fire away, if they yeah. don't, I, I, am, I am such a good communicator that if my message isn't getting through, I pretty much just blame the stakeholders. <laughs> I mean, because your communication that good. It's so I, good. I will say one one other thing too. So my example, I think, at the beginning was 
getting these exercises from a PMO, right? That say, hey, give me all this information right now. Don't ask questions about it. It's just a fire drill. And we all get these, these types of fire drill communications. Can I just advocate that if this comes from a PMO, if you spend one minute with, with an opening couple of sentences sharing context, and I don't mean yeah. context like my executive told me I had to do this. No, That's no, no. bad. Don't, don't do that. The context should be something, uh, you know, a, a great example. Let's say that that executive that I referenced earlier came and said, hey, what's the status of this? I don't know what it is. And you wanted to collect that. Hopefully you already should have had it. But let's say you had to collect some more information on it. It, it would be so easy to, in two sentences, say something as simple as, hey, um, we need to provide a quick status update on a client-facing project in order to update our executives who are new, who, who are, are coming up to speed on what the status of these things are. Could you please help me give them the information they need? There, I yeah. spent three sentences giving someone a you know, I, I would just call it courtesy, common human courtesy of understanding why I'm asking them for something. Yeah. And you'd be astonished at how, how much uh, more responsive people are when they have context and when you ask in a, what I would call is just basically decent way, as opposed to saying, here's a fire drill. This is a nine part email. Start with part what like everyone yeah, hates those I mean, emails. <laughs> I, think, I think another example would be, you know, Please, you know, please, you know, fill this information out. It's really needed. The organization is about to go through a set of layoffs. So we want to see which, um, you know, set of projects are functioning <laughs> and managed well and which aren't. So, you know, and believe it or not, that tends to get people to respond with a lot of information. So um, uh, I don't advocate for that way. I'll just say. But, Jim, that maybe that's been effective. Uh, do you want to talk? Yeah. Do you want to talk to us about the, the PMO types? Uh, no, I want to. I want to. I want to do one oh, yeah. other. One other uh, 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 paradoxical. Uh, talk about a paradoxical experience I've had. And uh, you know, it, it's interesting when you when you get good at communicating, um, you're going to find that uh, a lot of your peers may not be as good. So the the interesting thing about um, about really building that relationship with your stakeholders is over time you're going to end up building a trusting relationship they're going to entrust you implicitly your life will become easier they'll just they'll just trust that you're going to get the work done and if you need something you're it's justified right so these are all good things ironically when you start to manage larger initiatives which have larger budgets you're going to have different executive stakeholders and different things and, and what I found really fascinating as I as I progress through my career is when you when you get to the point you're you're good at this communication and you're good at picking the information out to to escalate up to the executive leadership so that they can either be aware of something or interact. The irony of it is they're going to be able to interact with the information you provided. So it's it's this weird thing that typically when when information goes up on a program or project it's such nonsense and gobbledygook that's thrown on a slide that's a templated slide and it says status yellow something's not going right it doesn't like people the executives can't do anything with it they're like tell me what you need whereas if it's done right they're gonna be like why is you know bullet three on slide three red 
and and you explain this, but why, you know, they'll be able to ask, ask much more contextual questions, which has the weird effect of feeling like you're being grilled, which is true, but it's because you're being transparent. So it's this paradox where I come out of a meeting and my project's actually like fully like transparent and on track, but I feel like I just got taken out to the woodshed and this other project, which is three years behind and 50 million over budget, it's just, you know, they couldn't make heads or tails of it. So... It's a little bit of an, a, a little bit of a paradox with with some of this, but I think Jim, it's a good and, thing. And <clears throat> Jim, I will say in in, in defense of that because I could see people then saying, "Well, great." What I heard Jim just <laughs> tell me is that I just need to obscure my you know my updates in terrible, awful technical language or poorly authored risks and issues, and people won't understand it. They won't ask questions and grade them off. the The fact is is that. Jim's right in that you definitely, because if you're very effective at communicating and transparent, um, you are going to be it, more frequently the focus of attention, the star of the show at, at you know, updates where you get peppered with questions. Now, now usually being, being, I know, experienced the way Jim is as well, he's not going in there saying, hey, I have all these problems. He's also saying, Here's the solutions that we're, we're using to mitigate. Um, here's the resources that we have involved. And typically, if you, if you come with the problems as well as the solutions that you're approaching with, which, I mean, that's PM 101. Yeah. Never, go, never go in with a problem that you don't already have a plan for. You might need to say, hey, I need your support to get these resources. You might, but go in with a plan, right? But so you might be the, the focus of attention for maybe more frequently than others. But when the others obscure, 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 and then they can't obscure anymore, then all of a the sudden there's much uglier conversations. And those uglier conversations aren't, hey, well, you know, uh, what are you doing about this? Or are you sure that that plan is right? It's why didn't you tell me this six months ago? And that's a much uglier conversation mm -hmm. in my experience than these smaller conversations that are happening more frequently. I think... As, as a PMO leader, a leader in a PMO, either a program manager, or project manager, I don't know that we spend enough time looking at those updates, the things that go in the tools. We spend too much time looking at the tools and the templates and not enough time looking at how those templates are populated and working individually with the people who are populating them to say, let me coach you and guide you on a better, more effective way to communicate that information. You said job 309 is, you know, in D status. Yeah, that's, no one I, you know what I'm really good at? Like patience and coaching for people. Yeah, I know everybody who's worked for me. So Jim can hire someone to help him do that. But, but if you think about it, right, Coaching, coaching the people who are filling those templates, and you can start hierarchically, right? So if you have a program manager who's responsible for project managers who are populating that information, and to, to say, hey, start with your program managers hierarchically and say, hey, guys, let me share with you the type of, uh, uh, of uh, update or communication that's acceptable, right? And, and the, the proxy that I usually use is my mother should be able to understand this. Maybe not all of the details of the technology behind it, but the words that I'm using to communicate, I should be able to share with my mother and she could get the gist of it. And, and then I could feel and she I might mean, say, hey, where are the details? There's no excuse not to be able to do this at this point. I mean, 
Look, I, you know, Braden's more, way infinitely more patient than I am, which is, you know, why we work well together. But, like, like if, if I have to explain to you for a third time, like, when you're writing a risk, a risk is not an issue. A risk is th- there's some probability of some event happening in the future that's going to have some impact of some severity, right? Structurally, like, back to grade school, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I mean, if I have to tell you three times, like, how to write a risk... I'm going to lose it. And then and then I'll just say a status, like, again, stoplight statuses are pretty much the consistent way of communicating broad, like, you know, and we've invented some amber color that's in the middle of yellow and red because whatever. Um, but, the, the, like, you can literally go to ChatGPT and say, I need to write a status update that gives, and here's the color, and even ChatGPT will, will say, you, you need to give the reasons why it's not green and then what you're going to do to get it Dude. back to green, right? Like, like these are basics. But Let's, a PMO, you know, fundamentally needs to reinforce this. And Braden's right. you got to coach it and whatnot. But. Well, and, and just, so just say, I mean, go, and we, we will, I think we actually do need to probably sometimes say we are going to coach people on here's the appropriate way to write. We're going to write risks. Yeah. We're going to write yeah. issues. We'll, and we, we'll can, do we can pick real world examples. But but the point being that I think as a PMO, as a leader of the PMO, whether you're uh, the, the overall leader of the PMO, whether you're a pro- program manager, I I think we y- your time would be well spent if you want to be that have that transparency that Jim was referencing earlier. You really need to spend time coaching, and and if you do it hierarchically, meaning if you start with the leadership and say now I want you to go work with your folks, your project managers. Um, but giving them examples and saying, let's write together, you know, two or three statuses. We're going to do it together. Here's what it looks like. Now I want you to go make sure that your folks are doing the same. And by the way, you know, your, your performance objectives for the year are going to be based on how effectively I'm interpreting that. And you, you'd be surprised at how much better some of that material can get. And, and then you're more effective. One of one of the one of the elements that we want to talk about is is how, you know the deployment structures of a PMO. A PMO, when you think about it, usually is some honking centralized organization that has all the project managers reporting to it. They have you know tools like Clarity or you know name your honking big project management tool, budgeting and resource forecasting and and all of that and everything else. But but. The truth of the matter is, it doesn't have to be that way. I think, Jim. What what is the average size of honkin? Just so that honkin. I can quantify honkin. Honkin, yeah. Honkin from a users or honkin from like a, a net expenditure, like dollars. I would say. What's what's honkin dollars? Like I've got a honkin set of dollars here. I mean, they, I've seen organizations spend you know eight million dollars a year on tools, which is insane for project management tools. But we've worked sure. for some huge corporations, but. You know, you know. I guess it's not. I mean, if you're like so many organizations you work with, had a five hundred million dollar like project portfolio every year, right? So, you know, and that's not counting their operational projects and everything. So, but like, yeah, it's. But a lot, a lot of again, a lot of times when these things get rolled out, they're masks. People use them as masks to deflect from the fact that they don't know how to functionally build something within a complex organization. So I'd say when you're talking about PMO types, that it's super important to know that there's there's not one 
particular type. So Braden and I have been, I've started several, Braden started and been part of several. Um, you, you have your traditional centralized where it's just what you would think, right? There's flavors of it, but it's a centralized organization, centralized processes, consistent tooling, everything else. Typically, the PMs report into that organization. If you have other functions, those functional folks report into it. You know, it's kind of a big centralized mass, right? Um, but there's other organizational structures where you heard the word federated earlier. You have the title of this episode, right? There's federation of functions sometimes, right? So sometimes portions of what the PMO does can be federated out to different portions of the organization. So maybe the PMs actually don't report in, but they're dotted line into the PM, the, the PMO centralized structure, but they report up through business units or IT units or whatnot. But the benefit of that is they have to follow the consistent structural processes, tools from the PMO, but they're tied in more directly with the day-to-day -day functioning of the organization. That's more effective for some groups. I think one of the uh, from a maturity standpoint, if you're if you're dealing with an organization who's never had this, and it would be a culture shock to really put in a big centralized group, um, and you know, are these organizational structures we call you know uh, centers of excellence, right? And really, it's probably the least you can do to start getting things done consistently. But what you say is like, there's a set of functions we do within an organization from a PMO or project standpoint. You have a project management center of excellence or a PMO, and you do, you provide a, a, a set of resources, a set of collaborations. You can still have people dotted line into that. You can have a business analysis center of excellence. It's here's our methodology, here's our templates. Uh, you know, we didn't talk about it, but you know, here's our job classes, families, job descriptions. You know, here's your ladder for how you move up in these functions. Um, but but really there's there's no one answer and, and maybe that's a little scary to some folks because there's not a playbook. But I think this is where we want to get into the next part of the conversation, which is if you're going to roll out a PMO or if you rolled out a PMO and it's not getting traction, you really got to understand the culture of the organization you're part of, your executive sponsorship, and then how do you right size. Even if you have a vision to do things in a certain way, how do you go from your current state, given the culture, and get to the end state where you want to be. Because if you try to disrupt the culture, and this goes for an individual project or a PMO, you're most likely going to fail. So, um, you know, I don't know, Brayden, if, you know, I, I, I think, again, organizational size plays into it as well. Like, if you have a few projects, a lot different than if you have, like I said, a $500 million annual portfolio of projects, which there's going to be a lot more accountability needed. Any thoughts on structural types? Yeah, you know, the uh, one of the things as you were talking is just and and for folks who maybe aren't aware and and it it seems kind of intuitive but but if you haven't seen back and forth there's trade-offs between having a centralized organization and a federated federated organization and I'd say those are the two most common I've I've seen center of excellence less I, I've usually seen a full PMO that's either federated or centralized. Uh, and, and the trade-off that you typically get is in a centralized organization, I truly do have one place where I can go to to control methodology, to, to uh, share best practices, et cetera, et cetera, as well as to get status. 
the the trade-off there is if all of my PMs are direct line into a central organization, not dotted line, they don't live in the business units or in the IT units, but they live in, in a central PM project management organization, what you'll often get is um, those those individuals, those project managers, uh, might might work a project in the claims area one year and then move over and work on uh, in a completely different area the next year. And, and as a result, maybe aren't super knowledgeable or close to the organizations for which they're doing project management. Now, there are plenty of, of project managers who can learn quickly, who can adapt or who have been across the organization so many times in the enterprise that they already know the players, they know the people, and they can bounce back and forth. And it's really easy for them because they know lots of people and, and experience helps them be effective there. But oftentimes what can happen is in a centralized organization, the reason I think that decentralization or federation happens is because the individuals that aren't living in the business units and aren't close to those those uh, people who are doing the execution work, they're not familiar enough with the processes, the people, the technology, the solutions, etc., to be super effective. And so either either they're learning and they're trying to come up to speed, but it takes a while for them to be effective, or worse, they become what, what Jim and I call checkbox PMs. And a checkbox PM is where you just say, hey, you tell me the tasks that you're working on. I'll write them down in the project plan and what date you think it's going to be done. And then I'll ask you if it's done, right? That that individual isn't adding value. They don't understand. If you really want to add value as a PM, as a program manager, etc., you have to understand the underlying um, business process, technology solution. You have to understand it all at a fairly detailed level. Um, and then, th- then you can add value by spotting risks, by understanding and being able to quickly communicate those risks, get the appropriate resources to bear, etc. You add value by being a team member that actually knows what's going on, as opposed to an administrator that's pestering people with questions. And that, I mean, that's the crux in my mind of ineffective versus ineffective. So, so you, there's a trade-off between having that centralized group, which brings people out of those units, versus federated, where they live in those in those towers in those you know IT or business areas, but then maybe they have less of a connection with some of the standards that they should be following. Um, less accountability, maybe not- right? Maybe right. And in order for a PMO to be successful, one of the key elements is you have to have at least one, but ideally all or most of the executives of the organization supporting the effort um, in some fashion. I mean, they don't they don't have to buy into everything, but they have to at least buy into the concept that a PMO is valuable. Um, if you don't have that, I'm going to be honest with you. You either got to wait that exec, you got to wait that leadership change out, or you should leave <laughs> because you're gonna you're gonna be fighting an uphill battle from getting the right budgets to getting the right staff. You know, we didn't talk about, you know, one of the things we had on here and we probably won't get to it, but it might be its own episode. You know, you know, how much budget should be set aside for project management overhead or PMO, right? And there's some industry metrics out there. I think, Braden, we were talking about, you know, 10 to 12 percent of a... 10 percent is a really quick, if you if you needed a, just a sort of thumb in the air, what yep. what is it? 
10 percent overhead is typical industry yeah yeah so if you have a hundred million dollars worth of projects it's 10 million dollar budget but you know if you get an executive who doesn't think there's any value in that and they're like no <laughs> we're gonna give you two million you're gonna be like what what am i gonna do with two million dollars to deliver a hundred million dollars worth of work right so be very cautious and make sure you have executive buy-in and sponsorship especially when you're rolling out new things right um that's one of the big ones um if you're an executive who is looking to build out a PMO and find somebody to run it, I would very much caution you not to hire, what's a kind word? A process wonk. A process wonk. Um, that was exactly what I was going to say. We've we've seen it so many times. I mean, share, share some. I yeah, mean, I, mean I, I have stories, you have almost stories. Almost every yeah. organization has them, right? And, 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 and I think, let, let me be fair, uh, I, I think... There, there's value for people who are really passionate about the science, the academic elements of project management, right? And 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 they're in, in and I, I think they're a little Pollyanna about you know projects. I, I don't know if you ever reach a point. I've been in. I'll just be honest. I've been in one organization in my entire life, who's a, who's essentially functioned smoothly. One, and that was a startup. And now it's like who just kind of where it just, you know, there was there was the product team who envisioned products by listening to customers and then translated that into stuff. And then there was a negotiation on capacity and then it turned into a set of work and that work was tested like one, one. All the rest have some sort of dysfunction. And, you know, I, I think avoiding you can't put that type of a person in charge of rolling this out because you have to put someone who's just practical, who's been there, who has scars, who like will shudder when you say certain things because a memory will pop in their head. Like, like, right? I mean, those are the people you want because they've been through it and they're not going to do something that's going to repeat those experiences. Well, I was going to say that the, there's there's another important one that, that, you know, going back to kind of what makes a, a PMO effective or, or less effective and it has to do with like having having enterprise vision right mm-hmm. for sure um, there are you can you can and it's not necessarily so this isn't necessarily someone who's a process wonk you could even have someone who has decently good instincts in terms of getting the right people in place communicating the right things but um, doesn't doesn't have the enterprise uh, or, or sort of vision of the enterprise that's necessary in order to help the PMO do what it needs to do. Case in point, let, let's say, and, and this goes back to some of the things that Jim was saying about the culture of an organization. Um, your organization, let's say, could be small. It could be very agile in nature, uh, uh, flexible. And if you're trying to focus on standardizing certain things to to the nth degree with templates and and whatever else now, now we're starting to sound like we hate tools and templates which isn't which is no, no, true. not true yeah but but misunderstanding the approach in the organization sometimes you might say hey we should standardize this but let's keep this super light and easy mm-hmm. because i can tell within this small organization i don't need to go find some huge fortune 50 companies 20 you know 2000 page manual on how to do quality assurance correctly um you know maybe as the company grows i i take some of those learning that's great but initially the culture of this company 
is all about being able to quickly produce and pilot new products that we can get to market within a super short time. I don't want to get in the way of that. And I need to make sure that whatever approach that I'm taking to helping manage those initiatives and make them predictable, as, as we were talking about earlier, is is compatible with the culture. And, and if it's a nimble, agile, small group, my solution needs to be within that context. If the group is chaotic and it needs a, a, a molding, if, if it's a you know, midsize or a large organization, they say, hey, we're in complete chaos, we have no predictability, then maybe I say, yeah, you know what, I need to introduce some predictability here with maybe a little, a little deeper or a little more careful, carefully thought out standards and, and uh, an approach that brings people in. But it's going to depend on the combination of what the vision of that enterprise is, the culture of that enterprise, as well as as what Jim was talking about earlier, the sponsorship of the executive leaders who say, here's what I want, and hearing and understanding that. Yeah, I mean, there's so much here, and, and maybe we can get through these, and you know, we'll, we'll see, but I, I want to build on, on so I'll, I'll just give a real-world example of a PMO, you know, that I've, you know, when I've rolled these out, or I've come in to help a couple of organizations fix fix their PMO rollouts and in kind of in the two examples I'm thinking of they they just went too fast I mean so mm-hmm. so let me give you an example right so one of the uh, one of the challenges that one of the organizations well a lot of organizations face this is they have let's say there's 10 programs and you know 50 small projects right they they are all managing status and they're all giving, so they have they have their status reports with their stoplight colors and your risks and your issues. And then there's a section that says um, upcoming milestones or upcoming tasks, blah, 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 right? So you have a section for that and accomplishments and whatnot. What was interesting is that that information, when it came back, it was in the same format, but like they had wildly different information, different levels, right? So... Um, what the PMO tried to do was to bring in a tool with all shalot, a schlot of detail, uh, and, and force bunch. everybody to fill fill that out in in hopes of getting it to be consistent. And and the people one weren't having. And there's a whole slew of reasons culturally. Like you're asking them to spend two hours a week filling out a form. Like they couldn't get the information. This is the other part is they couldn't get some of that information because of maturity from the IT group in this particular case. So they're like, "What am I supposed to do?" And, and the answer was, "Well, that's your job. Go figure it out." If you have to sit with them, go sit. You know, it was just unrealistic. So one of the things to consider when you're rolling this out, this we talk about. Oh God, it's such a consulting term. Much, you know, I'm a consultant, but I just don't like the term. But it's it's kind of a useful way of describing. It. It's this crawl, walk, run, right? you know when you're rolling out a PMO start by crawling so one of the first things I tell people is like it's think about what is in defense like like if if someone if a PM can't provide you this basic level of information they should walk themselves out the door start there right so if they can't tell you the hyper basics about their project like the SDLC phases and their target dates like this is when I'm projecting to finish requirements and development and testing and this is my target go live if they can't do that after you've given them weeks to do that they should not be in that job so if you go back to the baseline there it's it makes it an indefensible thing 
uh, for for the organization. Like we have to start here, and then once you establish everybody giving you that baseline, then you can step up to the next level. Consider that incremental rollout. As always, we welcome everyone's feedback and really encourage you to um, share comments, to, to share your thoughts. You know, part part of what we enjoy, I think, both both Jim and I, uh, from being part of the the PM community. Is, is interaction, is getting thoughts and, and ideas from other folks as, as we go through. Um, is there anything that we missed? Is there anything that we should have thought about? You know, are Jim's ideas really as dumb as they sound? Let, you know, let us know in the comments. They're no, that's, they're not. Don't. They're, not. They're, <laughs> they're all great. And uh, if you're, uh, you know, if you're listening to audio only, by the way, we, we actually do have faces uh, in, in various places, you can actually get uh, a visual and see our direct interactions. Um, but, but just remember, you know, our, our tagline here, remember, projects are hard. You just need to be harder. Braden really struggled with this one, so we're going to try out different taglines. I think this one's a winner, if Braden could keep a straight face on it. Braden's not going to be able to keep it. This one's... <laughs> I mean, well, let's. Brayden you know, can maybe, choose maybe. the next one. I, uh, to be fair, I if if you didn't if you couldn't figure it out, this came from my mind. So Brayden's got the next one. I'll, I'll 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 have the next one ready. Either me or ChatGPT. Okay, so <laughs> folks, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>